Stress, anxiety, and depression are skyrocketing among children and teens. And Cook Children's Healthcare System is on a mission to bring these topics into the light. I'm Winnie King. And I'm Dr. Kristen Perch. If you have kiddos in the room, now is the time to put on those headphones. Some of the topics we'll be discussing will not be suited for young ears. This is Raising Joy. Welcome back to Raising Joy. Today, we're talking to Dr. Kathleen Powderly, a pediatrician at Cook Children's. Dr. Powderly is the former medical director of Cook Children's Hospitalist Group and currently sees patients at Cook Children's Pediatrics uh, Magnolia in Fort Worth. Welcome to our show, Dr. Powderly. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me today about talking about this very, very important issue to me. Yeah, very good. And you have such an interesting perspective on kids' mental health because you've been a physician in the hospital and now you're in the office setting. So tell us about your experience and what you've observed over the past several years. So I think, you know, starting out as a hospitalist, I was a hospitalist for 15 years with Cooks. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been with Cooks now 20 years total. And so um, I think what we started seeing was we were just seeing a lot more admissions for um, suicide attempts. And it got to be where it was so much that actually the psychiatry department approached us Because what we would do is we would just admit the kids and basically they took over everything. And they were so overwhelmed with those numbers because they were having to take care of the kids on the inpatient unit and then their and then their own practice that they just didn't have the time. They were overwhelmed with the volume. So they approached us um, about being the primary admitters and um, taking care of the kids from admission to discharge without them consulting unless there was a particularly difficult case. And so they did training with us. Um, They kind of walked us through the process of what they did. And um, as it started to progress, we realized what impact this was having on the hospital system overall. Because kids would come into the emergency room, and if the emergency room doctors just needed to get them to a psychiatric hospital, there just wasn't enough space, whether it was with us or with another facility. So those kids either stayed there, or more often what ended up happening is because the the ER got overwhelmed. Remember, this was before we had our lots of rooms. And so they were getting admitted up to the floor. Well, those kids need a sitter. So we needed staff, a particular staff member sit with that child 24 hours a day. And then we needed to adapt to the rooms so that they were safe, so that those children wouldn't be at risk for reattempting suicide. And we had to adapt the parents being able to bring in certain items to the room. So we had to have storage places for those items. We had to have the staff trained on what it was like to care for those kids when they're sitting in the room 24 hours a day with them. And then from the hospitalist standpoint, we had to kind of go through, I mean, those those histories took so long because you're trying to get to the core of what's going on to those kids. So you can provide the appropriate treatment for them. And so that took even more time Mm. from the hospitalist. And so at every layer, there was just more pressure on the system as a whole Mm -hmm. 
because we would have sometimes have these kids in the hospital for a couple of weeks because they didn't, they're still suicidal, but we didn't have a place for them to go. Wow. And so um, the clinical therapist would see them, but at the time there was only staffing from Monday through Friday. So some of these kids wouldn't get therapy for two or three days, especially if it was a holiday. So then we had to advocate for cooks to staff them seven days a week. So it was a huge build. And the patients that we were seeing, I think initially at the beginning were kids who had a lot of adverse childhood events um, that became suicidal because of the different things that happened to them in their life. But then we saw this whole other different branch and that we, I think we still see now, which are kids who actually are come from kind of a stable family but who have um, high academic rigor, who are overscheduled, who do not have sleep, mm. who lack a lot of resiliency towards failure, and then events happen and they don't know how to cope and there's a suicide attempt, and those numbers have skyrocketed. And so it was just this kind of building on the system. And so I kind of I've always, when I talk about mental health to parents, I always kind of talk about mental health in a kind of a pyramid mm -hmm. where at the base where the most is, is stress. And I talk about stress, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempt, and then suicide being the smallest number. And I think that as a hospitalist, I dealt with the top half of that pyramid, just trying to stabilize. Mm. And then transitioning over to primary care, I feel like I'm now dealing with the bottom half of the pyramid, which deals a lot more with preventing going up the pyramid. Now, sometimes I have kids that come in that are suicidal or have had suicidal thoughts in the past, but for the most part, having a lot of kids coming in with problems with school, friends, bullying, um, problems, they're struggling with gender and sexual orientation, um, and then coming now to us, and it was like this before the pandemic just made everything a thousand times worse, but there's a lack of counseling. There was a lack of funding for counseling. And even if you had insurance, the amount of co-pays you had to pay. And then if kids escalated, the lack of psychiatrists, the number of psychiatrists, and a lot of psychiatrists don't take insurance. And so there was a lot that happened. So it, I think it has kind of pushed, at least in my, my practice, has pushed me to, especially during the pandemic, of doing things that were just a little bit different than what I did, which is usually at the very beginning of my pediatric career, if I ever thought that someone had to be prescribed antidepressants, that was an immediate referral to the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. But now that's just a part of my practice. That's just, it has to be because there's no resources. And so we were really kind of at this, we're kind of at a kind of a crisis point here where we truly have people who meet the identity of major depression, but they don't have resources to get into psychiatry. And they, it, the wait times to get into counseling can be months. So for a lot of those kids, I will see them I see them a couple of times. If I feel like they need to be on medication, we do, but we're already starting that process of trying to get them into therapy. Mm -hmm. And then I actually see those kids who are, who I feel like are more on the edge. I see them actually every couple of weeks 
for actually several months. That's what I did during the pandemic. And um, then, of course, referring out, doing safety plans for parents at home. I mean, it was a kind of a huge process when you're when you're taking care of these kids. And a lot of that knowledge I got when I, from when I was a hospitalist. Well, so, because I knew what was up here at, at the, the top. Of the pyramid, Right. Yeah. So, it's, it was kind of working down here. So, that's kind of the difference, I think, in where I started and where we are now and seeing kind of that whole evolution. It's still happening, but it's just, you're just different parts doing different things. Wow. That was a mouthful because, I mean, you just described the breakdown. I mean, there is there is an organizational breakdown, and it, I know it's not just with Cook Children's. I mean, it's every healthcare Correct. facility when you, when we're talking about pediatrics and dealing with kids with mental <clears throat> health issues. That that's scary to me because we don't have the resources. We don't have, and and it, they're coming in in droves, and it's really difficult to even understand how we're going to evolve. Right. And I think what I always have thought that makes pediatrics unique is because every age is different. You cannot treat a 15-year-old with depression the same way you treat someone who's seven. Mm. And so you have to have both inpatient and outpatient resources that are adequate and an understanding of the differences of how they kind of present. Like, I have actually so many parents that come to me with concerns of kids who have ADHD. And they might, but as we all know, ADHD, depression, anxiety, all of those can actually mimic one another in a young child. Right. And so that I think is just, and that's not a clear understanding, nor would I expect parents to understand that, but I think that's a challenge of, 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 of pediatrics just in general is having to decipher all of those out. Right. You think so? No, I totally agree. And I think that's why I actually like treating kids is because it's, but I talk to parents, it's a moving target. And and sometimes parents will tell me, I get a little nervous because you keep talking to me about my kid going through puberty and how things may change. And I'm like, no, it's okay. Like we're going to meet it together. But you're absolutely right. Like the way a seven-year-old presents with depression versus a 15-year-old is totally different. Right. right. Wow. Um, so as a pediatrician, you're now at the bottom, that base part of the pyramid. Are all pediatricians looking at it the way you're looking at it? And are they approaching it the same way when it's when we're talking about mental health? I would say probably not. Okay. I mean, I think I have a different perspective because I saw so much on the other end. And so I see in my mind, it's always been something that's been very, very important to address simply because um, of what we see potentially at the end and the things that we can do. But there are there are certain things that I think pediatricians that do, like, for instance, most pediatricians at 11 to 12 do the PHQ, which is a, which is a kind of a depression screen that we do. And it's talking about sleep and it asks certain pointed things like, have you ever thought about ending your life? Things like that. But they'll talk about eating, sleep, things like that, just so that you can kind of get an idea. But I actually like to start with questions that in my mind are psychiatric questions but at very young ages, like five, six, seven, mm. because you can simply ask some a child, you know, what's your favorite part of school? Mm. You know, what do you like to do for fun? 
What's the name of a friend? If all of those they cannot answer or they struggle with, Mm. then that to me is a sign that I need to inquire more as to what is going on. Because if they, a five and six and seven-year-old should love school. They Mm -hmm. should be able to name 10 friends. And they should say, you know, I love playing. I love doing this. And if they can't name those things, then it's just something that you need to pursue. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. But it's, again, it's with those open-ended questions, you know, just like I ask all of the kids. So how's sleep? Is it easy to go to sleep? Do you have to wake up a lot? I mean, sleep is such an important part, I think, when I have someone who has depression. That's one of the first things that I focus on is sleep. Because if you don't have your sleep, everything else falls apart. Mm. So um, so those are like simple things that I think that we can address. You know, of course, you know, so many people know, you know, we have to look for changes in behavior of our kids and all right. of those other things. Right. And if you have ever had a teenager and now I have a 17-year-old, that could be a daily evolution, right? <laughs> we, you know, We've talked about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's that kind of that that push and pull of trying to figure out, you know, of of what that is, but but figuring out are they sleeping, are they are they having fun at school? Do they have friends? And you can do that at all different ages, and that's a part of the well child check that can just be a part of trying to figure out development. Mm -hmm. And so those are just things that like, if it's a cue in, then for me, it's either I have to ask more questions or maybe I have them follow up for something just so I can see how things are going. I mean, that that's something parents can do. Right. I mean, just ask those questions, you know, just to kind of see if there's anything that may be a flag. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, uh, Dr. Powderly, you were quoted in the Joy campaign last spring as saying, we're not going to be able to flip a switch and go back to normal, which I totally agree with. Yeah. So talking about mental health, like, how do you think things are going now? Is the flip beginning to switch or are you still seeing a lot of struggling kids and families? Yeah, I think it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain patients that I've had that struggled just in the pandemic that even I had to put on medication or had to go through counseling that I think with the engagement of going back to school, work, extracurricular activities with the world kind of opening up more, they have done well, gotten off counseling, gotten off medication and things are good. I have a whole other segment of kids who are still struggling because of the pandemic. Um, Whether it was, you know, we have to remember kids experienced so much loss you know, whether it was a loss of a family member to COVID, it was a loss of friendships. I mean, it really impacted their behind in school. They were not able to do things that are very, very important to kids who are young, you know, whether it's proms or graduations or being involved in those things. And I think there's a continued right now, it seems like there's like, yeah, we know it's getting better, but we're still pretty negative because things can just happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just to give you kind of an idea, so my son's a senior, and so he's majoring in musical theater. So we had all these auditions, and he was in a musical, and he was so stressed about getting sick and not being able to do these things. So fully vaccinated, everything fine, uh-huh. but just like he knew what would happen if he was positive. And so, he would run off stage, 
because the masks weren't required at his school. And he would run into the choir director's office in between each time so he could stay isolated. He didn't go out to any of the, like, the first show parties. He didn't do any of those things because he was like, I have my auditions the next week. And other than his girlfriend, he didn't see anybody without a mask on. I mean, he was, he was like, I've got to get through this. Oh, how stressful. Right. And so if you can only think that that's how kids have to be there, like, if I want to do this, I'm going to have to do this to make sure that I'm safe enough to be able to do that. And that is where some people have lived for the last two years. And that in trying to grow up and grow relationships and all of those things, if you had families that are intact and supportive and pushing and be like, okay, then we're going to do this and you have resources and all of that stuff, then it was tolerable. Mm -hmm. But if you were on the margins, Mm -hmm. it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. And some of those kids are rising, but I think there's still a struggle and I still see a lot of struggle. And I think too, for kids, they're just so here and now, like especially teenagers, and they're going to have to see it and feel it to know like things are different and they're better. Like they're going to have to go to prom and things are going to have to get back to normal. And I I think we're unfortunately a little bit away from that happening. It couldn't come soon enough. Right. Right. Well, you were talking about your son's activities, but you've been a very vocal proponent of keeping kids in school during the pandemic. Why was that so important to you? Because I think for, I think for certain kids, school is just education, okay? But I think for the majority of kids and the majority of families, schools provide so much more than just getting taught. Now, we are already seeing the effects of the virtual school and all of those different kinds of things in terms of kids being behind, needing to catch up. Some of those kids hopefully will catch up. Some probably won't. Um, So there's that whole thing. But I have always believed that there's really kind of five things that will make a successful child. Education, health, safety, nutrition, and housing. Like if we think of those five things, Mm -hmm. and when we think of what happened during the pandemic and what schools provide, not only just the education part, but number one, just nutrition. Those kids who were on free reduced lunch, while they could come and pick up things, how are they going to get there if they don't have a bus, Uh right? What happens if we don't have a car? Hmm. What happens if we can't get that? Then we kind of have food uh, food deprivation. And then we are stuck eating things that are really poor. And we saw just this increased rise in obesity in Mm -hmm. kids. Um, The mental health aspect of this, it is so, it was that pandemic when you were at home with education, it was so isolating. Um, and I'll share this, that my son, so my my husband's a stay-at-home dad. My son's a teenager. He had a car. So he could do things. Even with all of those things, one day I was at the clinic during the pandemic and I, I was like, oh, you really posted several videos on TikTok today, my friend. <laughs> and he goes, well, mom, he goes, I mean, after, you know, we had like 20 minutes of school, he goes, I was bored and I didn't know what to do. So I just did that. And like my heart was breaking, mm-hmm. right? Because he's just like, I'm here. And yeah, yeah dad's here. But, yeah. you know, da, 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 da. And, um, you know, for kids who, when you were ever, if you ever were in that 
classroom if your child was in virtual school. You saw all the cameras going off. And I started asking some of my patients, why are you turning your camera off? And they're like, well, yeah, I don't like seeing myself. Mm. And I have to look at myself every day. And if you think about a teenager, they're very self-critical of themselves. And so they were having to look at themselves. And then anytime you would raise your hand, everybody would look at you, right? So, which is exactly what kids don't want, right? (laughs) So they weren't asking for help. And so, so, so there's this whole kind of this part. The other part of that was, is that we had kids watching kids. Some Mm -hmm. parents had to go out. Yeah. And so we had young children watching other kids or teenagers who were trying to be on their on their online school and they had their siblings coming in and some teachers would not allow it. <gasps> and so they didn't know what to do. And then you had kids at home that were isolated from their friends, getting sadder and sadder mm. with access to medications, with access to weapons. And then you were seeing a lot more, uh, only because I got a lot of patients in that the counselor called the parents because the child was Googling things about how to commit suicide. And so that alerted the school and they called the parents, which is great. Mm -hmm. Great. That's Mm -hmm. great. But all of those things. So we had all of these things kind of happen. Any child who was suffering from abuse, our numbers of abuse cases dropped. Okay. It didn't just because this magic that we were all together. Mm-hmm. It was because they weren't in school and teachers are typically, you know, medical and teachers are number one and number two reporters of abuse. So we had the, that whole group of kids not have any relief. Mm. You know, kids who were LGBTQ, who maybe families weren't supportive of yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, they really struggled because now they were never able to be with anybody who was maybe accepting of them. And then if you think of the housing impact, how is somebody who is homeless, how are they going to figure out how to go online? And they don't have like, you know, 20, you know, they don't have eight hours where they have a bathroom. And so that's why I was such a vocal you know, proponent of, of trying to keep kids in school. Not that we didn't have to have some time out right. and not that we didn't have to do this, but our focus should have been Everything should have been, how do we safely get kids back in school? It shouldn't have been like the back burner afterthought. Mm -hmm. It should have been like, that's the focus. How do we do that? And we had to do that because of all of these things that we're talking about. Wow. Never saw it like that. Never, never saw it like that. Knew it was bad. Just didn't see it in that much detail. Wow. And I feel like as a pediatrician, you're a first responder of sorts to kids in crisis. And so what do you do now, um, if anything, to include mental health in the overall well-child check of a kid? Yeah, I think like kind of how I was kind of talking about before, how I address it kind of at different kind of ages. I also talk to even my families of um, young children um, about kind of building resiliency. Like it's okay to let them stay over here and have a temper tantrum. It's okay for them to kind of figure out how to sleep on their own. It's the thing is, is that the problem is, is that we start as a society, start addressing mental health way too late. We all of a sudden they're middle school and high school. We're like, Oh, let's talk about depression. Well, we shouldn't really talk about depression. What we need to talk about is how do kids 
build their resiliency from when they're young. Mm. And I talk to parents about, you know, the cruelty of parenthood is, is that when they get to be that 17, 18, that they will have all the skills to leave you. <laughs> and that's the goal. That's the goal. Supposedly. Right. Yeah. But that's the cruelty of it yeah. all, right? Yeah. But that's your success, yes. right? So yeah. it starts young, and it's those little building blocks of when they're young, of letting them be independent, letting them fail, and being there to support them. Then as we kind of go on in terms of the well checks, I always, in terms of my middle school and high schoolers, always address nutrition, sleep friends, and then how things are kind of going with their families. And of course, addressing like other things like, you know, um, sexuality and drug use and all of those other things. But, you know, the thing is, is that, and you know, in any given time, someone's not going to be honest with you, right. but they will be honest with you about sleep. Hmm. <laughs> right? Hmm. They may not be honest with you about sex or drugs, but yeah. they're probably going to talk about sleep. Yeah. And then that's your segue in wow. to kind of starting to talk about other things. Wow. That's great. That's great. What do you want families to know about the role their pediatrician can play uh, if their child is struggling? Yeah. We can help. Yeah. That number one, we can help. And that I think there is, there is such a stigma about mental health mm. and the identification of especially your child as depressed or even having ADHD. You know, like all of these different things and what that means. And I I try and think of when people are thinking, geez, I'm not so sure, call us. You yeah. know, we can we can come in and then we can talk with you and we can kind of figure out, is it is it just something that's just happening? Like they're having a friend crisis, yeah. you know, or is it something more underneath? And if we can't figure it out, we have resources that we can send you to to help us during all of this time. And so you're not out there alone. And if, you know, you know, my biggest thing is even if kids don't have doctors, there are hotlines that we can call, you know, that the Joy campaign has posted mm -hmm. so that you can have, you're not out there alone. And don't be afraid because of the diagnosis that it could be of getting the help that you need. Go ahead. And this is obvious, you know, a topic that you're very passionate about. So what why are you so passionate about this? Yeah. And so I've I've talked publicly for, for several years about my own struggle with depression. Mm -hmm. um, I try to explain to people that, um, you know, that is something that can happen from when you're very young. Um, you know, from the time I, I think I probably was eight or nine, I didn't recognize it that I was depressed. Um, I came from a very, very chaotic family, chaotic life. Um, and when I was young like that, I never, I never thought I was going to become an adult. Mm. I never thought that was going to happen. And, um, people would ask me what I want to be. And I would just tell them that in my mind, I was like, I'm just not going to get there. And I wouldn't say I was like suicidal. It just never occurred to me that I was going to be that old. Um, I always, for many years, I kept a bag packed under my bed in case things got bad so I could leave where I was going to go. Who knows? Mm. Um, but for me, it was, I kind of tell people, it's kind of like there was like a fog in between me and people. And then I could kind of see people 
doing things, but there was kind of this fog. As I went into middle school, I had a sibling incarcerated in prison and having to go do that kind of visit Mm -hmm. and the stigma related to that, you feel like you have done something wrong. And then, of course, all of the other middle school things, not wanting people to find out those things. And then um, in early high school, my parents separated. Um, When I was a junior, my older sister, who was my best friend, who was 23 at the time, was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she passed away um, the beginning of my senior year. Uh, Before she passed away, she made me promise that I would go away to college Mm -hmm. and that I wouldn't stay just to take care of my mom and my sisters, but she knew that was going to be my way out. Mm -hmm. And so like a dutiful person, I did. But when I went to college, not only was I struggling with all of the stuff that had happened and then her death, which was, you know, clearly just nine months before, but then the stress of feeling like I had to succeed so I wouldn't have to go back. Yeah. And so that was a very dark time. Um, I started doing self-injurious behavior. I had a lot of suicidal ideation. Um, there was a couple of nights I can think of that my best friend to this day and my roommate, if she wasn't there, I don't know if I would have made it. Um, and then, of course, I went on to medical school and residency. And it was so busy. I just kept shoving everything because it was so busy. Yeah. And yeah. I had to keep going and I had to keep going. Um, and then I came to Cook's. And um, then I had a lot more time, right? I had a lot more time, <laughs> which, you know, then you have a lot more time to think about and start processing everything. And I became a mom. And um, I really continued to struggle. Um, I had moved my mom here. I was taking care of her while she was ill for the first six years that I was a hospitalist and, you know, and I had a young child. Um, and, um, there were many times where I, I, I kind of describe it as that fog kept pushing in Mm. and it pushes in and you feel like you're being backed into this corner. And then it's almost like it's compressing you and you can't breathe Mm. and it just hurts and you just want it to not hurt. And, um, there were times where I just thought, okay, I have all this debt. I've got to take care of my family. I don't want people to feel bad. And so I would think of ways I was like, if it gets bad, this is what I'm going to do. It'll look like an accident. They can get the money and then I won't have pain and they won't have to deal with me. And the thought of, of, of me doing that. And then there were times where it was so bad that I would say, okay, I don't want, I knew and seeing as a hospitalist the effects of suicide had on children of their parents, I didn't want my son to ever think that that he was at fault or my husband. So then I thought, okay, when he turns 18, then he'll go away and he'll be set. And if I just think if I can just survive till then, I'll have a way. And so I started really struggling at work with burnout. I had a couple Mm -hmm. of difficult cases and I started really snapping at nurses, which is not what I do. I remember yelling at my son for a grammatical error on a project when he was in the fifth grade. I mean, I remember sitting there screaming at him and I thought, I don't want to be this kind of mom. And so 
I was really struggling at work. I thought about leaving. And I went actually to one of our chaplains who was helping on a case. And then she talked to me about the employee assistance program and getting help. And I still, I didn't want to do it because I thought, I, and this is, I think, the stigma, especially if you're in the medical field. I didn't want my partners to know. I didn't want my patients to know. I didn't want my family to know. I thought they would think less of me. But I went because I knew I was not doing well. And that was so life-changing for me. And it was some of the reason probably that I evolved. And I was like, you know what? I need to do other kind of things. And I knew the the hospital's work was getting really so much at the time. Mm-hmm. It was got, got mm-hmm. kind of intense. And I thought I need to do other things. And I wanted to spend more time with my son. So I transitioned over to, 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 to medicine. But I look back on that person that I was when I was just trying to make these deals with myself. And I just want to reach back and just say, oh, just please go get some help now. Yeah. Yeah, that it's going to be okay. And so it's it's one of those things where I think that I share only because to say that there's hope, mm. but also to for people to understand that we may not be able to fix everything all at once, but we can fix what's right in front of us. And we can try. And if all of us kind of get together and we all look at our, whether we're in marketing or we're a doctor or whether we're a nurse or whatever it is that we're doing, whether we go to the legislature, if we can do our part for the kids that are right in front of us, for the moment that's right in front of us, that's where the impact is going to come. Because it was people in my life that saved my life. And now I look back and I just, I feel so bad for that person that it was, that I was, and just in terms of how scared I was and that we just need to not be so scared about addressing these issues with our, our families and really looking internally at ourselves, because I think it's probably much more pervasive in medicine than we we give it credit for. Dr. Powderly, I cannot, like, I turn no, up. No, I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I just have so much respect for your ability to um, be so open with what you've struggled with yeah. because I know, like you said, there's such a stigma in medicine, but to be so honest, I know that it is going to help so many people yeah. and your passion about treating mental health um, and children, it's infectious. And um, you really were the reason the Joy Campaign started. And You were. You were absolutely <laughs> it. You rang the bell. And I, I just, I, just your strength and bravery and being honest, I, I think it just will do so much to decrease the stigma because you are incredibly successful yes. and you're such a leader. And to also acknowledge that I have struggles too, and to be honest about it, I just hope it's the start of a lot of really powerful conversations. And I can't say thank you enough. Mm. Well, I just, I'm, I'm just really, I actually really am thankful for cooks. There's a lot of hospital systems that don't address things. And from the time that I was a hospitalist, and I was literally, even though I won't bang on the table here, it's banging on the table, 
saying, you know, we need help. This is the problem. We need help that, you know, the, the thing is, is what gets people when they start talking about change is, is that they want it like, you know, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And we all do. Yeah. But we know that it is a process and we must just continue that march on because I'm going to tell you five, six, seven, eight years ago, I never could have thought that we would be in this place talking about it openly. Mm-hmm. And so that just tells you the power of people together. Yeah. You have walked the shoes in the shoes of a lot of the people you are trying to help, which really is saying, you know, I know what you're going through. I felt it. I feel it. What an inspiration. We are so grateful and so thankful for your stepping forward. You're ringing the bell. You're sounding the alarm. And the way you've built up the credibility where people are like, wait a minute, she's saying something. So we now have to pay attention. Thank you for being brave. Well, thank you for having me today. And to our listeners, if your child is struggling, please know that it's okay to reach out for help. Like one of our excellent pediatricians, Dr. Powerly, uh, and they're just a great place to start. Mm -hmm. And if you would like to learn more about the Joy Campaign, we have articles available on checkupnewsroom.com as well as cookchildrens.org slash joy. Also, we would love your support. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help us reach more listeners. Until next time. Have a joyful day.